because race was discussed very superficially in their relationship before, but I feel like if you're going to be in an interracial relationship with a white person, no less, these conversations about the differences between how the both of you are seen and and how you walk through the world have to be had. It's not debatable. <laughs> everyone this is alex and this is em welcome to the latest episode of the good the bad the basic this is a podcast for nostalgic gen x and millennials and binge watchers of all ages on this podcast we'll be discussing what we love what we hate and what's just a little bit problematic about the tv and movies that we're addicted to and do a bit of rewriting where necessary For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode bonuses, curated playlists, movie reviews, season finale, and pilot episode reviews, and much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Sorry. On today's episode, we'll be wrapping up our recap of Chronicles of NBC's Parenthood. Though it had a small start, Parenthood quickly gained traction on NBC, lasting six very memorable seasons. The Braverman clan had a lot of people and a lot of personalities, and the writers of Parenthood clearly loved each and every one of them. Each member of the Braverman clan was written with nuance and sensitivity. So what do we think made the back half of this drama so powerful? Stay tuned! So we are in the back half of Parenthood, which is seasons four through six. Last we left off, Joel and Julia were unable to adopt Zoe's baby, but they were placed with a seven-year-old boy named Victor, who is in foster care. And Mark Sear, um, Sarah's on off again, love interest, proposes to her at Crosby and Jasmine's wedding and she accepts so those are the major things that we left leave off at um in addition Christina gives birth to her last baby Nora so season four of Parenthood is only 15 episodes the 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 episode orders for the seasons on the show are really really odd but the writers do what they have to do with the episodes they have every season so why don't you kick it off um alex what are some major plots of season four that you'd like to talk about okay so i kind of want to jump into i guess the first thing we'll jump into since we didn't talk about jewel and joel and julia a bunch in the first half let's let's get to them i, I guess like in this back half and talk about Joel and Julia and Victor and this sort of Victor plot that happens. 
Yeah. So, um, if you guys remember from season three, Julia, or it was either season two or season three, Julia wanted to adopt uh, or have a baby, but realized that she couldn't get pregnant again. And so, um, she got it into her head to adopt and there was a barista at her job, Zoe, who was pregnant. And there was a whole trying to get Zoe's baby thing, which was incredibly off-putting. But in the end, they got Victor. And when they got Victor, um, it's easy to say their marriage started to spiral because they got had a new child in the picture. But if you've been paying close attention to this show, you've known that Joel and Julia's relationship was on the rocks from season one, from their very first encounter, she is, it, the issue is not even her being a workaholic because Joel is a stay-at-home dad with no complaints. It's the fact that Julia does not take Joel's opinion into account for anything and does whatever she wants, even though she has a whole ass husband who has thoughts and opinions of his own. Right. Like earlier, I think in the, the- beginning half of the season there's even joel is trying to because we find out that joel was a contractor previously um Mm -hmm. before he was a full-time stay-at-home dad and you know joel like any other stay-at-home parent is essentially you know really feeling that and wanting to find some identity i guess outside of his stay-at-home status and you know there is something to to there is something to be said about spending some time with uh, people over the age of, um, you know, 13 who, or people over the eight who don't drink out of juice boxes. Right. So right. Um, he's trying to, I guess, uh, do, like redo part time, I think with some of his contracting work and Julia just like runs over. <laughs> she doesn't even, pretend to like respect it (laughs) yeah so i don't know if you remember but in season two when they were having like issues with um um zeke and camille's house um she and crosby pretty much volunteered joel services and the whole time zeke acts as if he is the professional here like he knows what he's doing and he's doing joel some type of favor do you remember right. that episode? I do remember and- <laughs> that episode because I think that episode is well-directed. <laughs> I actually really love it, a lot of frames from that episode. <laughs> it was very well-directed. And I think it was very well-written, especially towards a Zeke Braverman character, because he's not someone who likes to admit that he doesn't know everything and that he needs help sometimes. Um, but these are just many, many examples of things that have gone on in the relationship. And... Um, Crosby and Zeke would often like joke about, um, you know, Joel being like the husband, the other, excuse me, the wife in the relationship, things like that. Um, because from what we know about everyone, every man in the Braverman family, they would not be comfortable doing what Joel does. I mean, Adam has a little tantrum when, um, Christina goes back to work. Right. Right. Um, so they would not be comfortable doing what Joel does and he does it well. Um, he does it without complaint. He does it to support his wife. So when he decides to go back to work part-time, like Alex said, and Julia is not only unsupportive, but she's lashing out because she did something that gets her fired from her law firm in this season. 
And so she's lashing out, not only at the fact that he's going back to work, but that she's now out of work. She is out of work, not by choice. She's feeling it. She's taking it out on Joel. And she actually has a nerve to accuse him, who's only been at, back at work for a few months now, of not being there for the family when all he did was be there for their family for years to support right. her career. Right. Like, it's you really, really messed up, Julia. <laughs> Listen, Julia like really pulls like some stuff out of her out of her ass, which is like really amazing to watch. Like <laughs> because I'm just like, what? Who are you, babe? Like, take a let's take a step back. The leaps we... of logic are really serious. <laughs> just like what? What's even happening? Um, and yeah, it sucks because. Joel is like this really, I don't want to say modern, but he's just, he's a good partner to her and he is happy to, and, and he sort of takes all the, particularly all the disrespectful comments that come from like the other Braverman family, like all the male Braverman family members, he takes it on the nose. He doesn't like engage with it. And there she is. And then, for her to like then further disrespect him is like yikes. And so essentially, and this is in this is what we sort of I think said in the last thing about, you know, whether Julia realizes or realizes it or not, Victor and Zoe and this whole plot is essentially her trying to have a band-aid baby. <laughs> like, um right. but whether she's like, but she's not the Julia character is not, I don't think is conscious of it in any sort of way. Right. Where conversely, I think the Joel character is conscious of it from the moment she says she wants a bait to want to have another baby with him. He's aware that his response is going to make or break their marriage for a lot of their marriage in the first half of the series. It really does seem like Joel going along with whatever Julia wants in order to keep the peace and keep his marriage. Right. Um, and we're talking about like every decision from even the decisions when it comes to Sydney and parenting Sydney and um, there, and there's this whole plot about Sydney being a sore loser uh, and kind of a brat that I think that we'll get to, but uh, yikes, when he sort of brings it up, you know, whether she likes it or not, Joel is the one that spends the most time with Sydney, right? Like he knows mm-hmm. her probably a bit better than Julia mm-hmm. because he's so involved in her life in a way that Julia can't be as a working parent. And, you know, when he brings it up to her, like, yeah, this is a thing. She's like, mm, you're like, you know, you just don't want our daughter to be a strong woman. <laughs> Which is like, <sighs> That's, That was crazy. <laughs> like died. <laughs> That was just, the mess was crazy. So this act, this plot actually, the spoiled child plot actually happens in season three. And if we're if we're if we're honest, we we the audience have seen how spoiled Sydney is from season one. But um, they are over at Zeke and Camille's house playing a game of of chess, I believe, or some sort of board game. Oh, it's it starts out with them playing um charades. That's how it charades. Starts. Thank and you. And it ends in in chess. Yes. Right. So she is a sore loser. 
Um, and it's be- it's revealed this is because Julia and Joel let her win all the time. So Zeke tells them straight up, and I love Zeke because he doesn't mince words. He loves all his grandkids, so you know when he says something negative about them, he really is saying it with their for their best interest. He's like, listen she's spoiled and at first joel takes offense to it which i think is a byproduct of the fact that it's someone who doesn't live in their home pointing it out first right Right. but he quickly comes on board and he's like yo this is actually real though she has a problem and julia does what alex says and says oh i just want her to be a strong woman and this is the most white feminist thing i've ever seen (laughs) it really is (laughs) i've actually made the comparison to alex that um, Julia and Sydney's relationship reminds me of the relationship between Angelica and her mom on Rugrats because Angelica's mom was also that workaholic. I believe she was also a corporate lawyer and she gave Angelica whatever she wanted because she wanted to raise a strong, powerful woman that didn't take anybody's shit. But I'm like, that's not how you raise a strong, powerful woman. This is why we have white women in positions of power that are just as bad, if not worse, than their white male counterparts. Because they literally think that being a strong woman is getting whatever you want as a woman, regardless of what anybody else wants or needs. Right, and regardless of consequence. Or in you just don't have to think about anybody ever. Right. And like Julia tries to parent when it's like least necessary. A perfect example of this is also in season three, season three, they they have like this little school play going on. Sydney and the Jabbar are both in it. Crosby is able to talk um, Sydney out of the lead because she had taken over for Jabbar, who was too shy. He negotiates with her. She accepts his negotiation. It's fine. But Julia gets upset. Sydney didn't... Right. It's like Sydney hadn't originally had the lead. She only took over for Jabbar and was given compensation to go back to her original role. And then Julia is upset. And I'm like, why? It's literally like a first grade play. That's just... that's just how Julie is. But, um, so then to bring this all back to the Victor plot, Victor is in the house in season four. Victor, Victor is an older, a, 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 like they're fostering him for the time being. And they, and he's living in their house. We find out he's been living there for months and he's sort of, and it's, it's complicated and it's, and there's, and everyone's sort of struggling because, you know, He's still getting adjusted, but he's well past the time of adjustment. And they're sort of letting him do whatever he wants when, you know, there are other considerations to be had. And like he's in doing whatever he wants in terms of like not really following house rules of like, okay, we all sit and eat together as a family, um, or we all sit and eat together, or like we don't eat in front of the TV, or like all the sort of like quote-unquote house rules that like any sort of household would have um so what's troubling about this victor plot and and it happens like immediately is and something that like absolutely started to like make my i think made my back like um made me like arch my back in a bad way (laughs) like as if like someone's like pricking me or something was there's this this scene in season four and Victor and Julia says, Hey Victor, do you want to come and like eat with us? And Victor says something to the, to the tune of, um, no Julia, I'm good here. And then Joel responds, your mom worked really hard on this dinner. 
Victor has a mother. Right. He has one. And it's weird that, like, they are, like, insistent on him calling them, Mm -hmm. like, mother and father and mom and dad. It's just weird. Right. And the issue is particularly with Julia, because as far as we know, like, um, his father's never been in the picture, but he was literally raised with someone that he called mom up until he came to these people's houses. And they want... They want, it's like they want Victor to engage in selective amnesia and forget that he had a mother who's alive still. Alive. (laughs) And was taken, and the only reason why he was taken was what she. She has a substance abuse problem. Yeah, she has a substance abuse. I was about to say, that's what I thought it was. She has, she's uh, an addict. So she's trying to recover and work towards not being an addict anymore. Yeah, it was wild to me because, um, I mean, this is something that foster children and adoptive children talk about all the time. Like, you can just keep saying we're family, we're family, and then make people a family. Um, That's something that comes with time. And one of the best um, examples of this is Ryan on the OC, who even though he came to eventually see the Coens as his parents, never called them mom and dad because he had those that's true that's you know what that's so true ryan always says mr and mrs cohen sandy or sandy or sandy and kirsten yeah yeah he always calls them by their first names and they're not offended by it because they know he has parents (laughs) right because i like Like, they might not be the best parents they might not even be in the picture 98 percent of the time but he has them he knows he has them he knows who those people are he knows their names he could pick them out in a crowd if he had to (laughs) right so then it comes back to like why are like white people so desperate to wash children of color like act like children of color just don't have parents right and like we can be family all day long i can i can take you in and embrace you as my chosen family just like you've embraced me but that doesn't erase the life that i had and the culture i had the community that i had before you um it's so so weird to me how joel not only they try to push joel i mean victor into calling julia mom but joel in particular acts as if it's downright disrespectful if he doesn't and they try to punish him for it right which is weird it's so weird and it's so gross um i understand that they're trying to establish boundaries and discipline and house rules but like you do that from the jump like and you just and you just do it you know what i mean like and it's it it can be very simple it can be like uh i this is oh my gosh what's julia's married name graham okay like i'm this is I'm Mr. and you can call me Mr. Graham and this is Mrs. Graham or you can call me Joel or you can call me or you can say Mr. Joel or like you can call me or you can say Miss Julia. This is Sydney. We do this at this time. You don't eat in front of the TV. You know, you got to play a sport. We're going to you're not you have parents, but in when you're in this house, you're I'm in charge of you. You know, I'm responsible for your well-being. So let's work together. Like it's possible. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's possible if your goal is to set boundaries and make the child who's a foster child feel comfortable and allow a relationship to develop over time. But what they were trying to do was quickly assimilate Victor into the family. And that's where a lot of the friction came initially and where a lot of the resistance 
comes from um i don't know if you remember in season four there was like a plot also involving victor where he is um you know playing baseball by himself outside and sydney's just being a brat and she says something along the lines of um oh your mom gave you up because she doesn't want because she doesn't love you and he throws the bat at her and she ducks and it hits like the glass window and like they punish victor rightly because he threw the metal bat but like not a single one of them asks why did you throw the bat victor right and (laughs) no exactly and then and even furthermore like something else is like when victor because of course they make victor hang out with max of course (laughs) everybody just has to nobody no (laughs) one is safe from max but they make victor hang out with max and max being max says something that is like that feels really racial actually of like, Oh, I know Jabbar and Sydney, but I don't trust or like you can't be trusted. And I don't know. And it, and I can't, um, I don't remember the exact dialogue of the scene, but it, it absolutely felt racial, like, and felt like sort of like, wait, what, like, can we step back? Like, did anybody talk to Max about that? Or mm-hmm. like, what that was because Vic it's like the first thing that Victor is like sort of like liking or interested in about like anybody in this family is like Max and his like iguana and like these bugs and and then I think yeah and then they have like a whole scene together and then he ends up like just taking the iguana to like tell Max like in order just to you know piss off max and there's like a whole like plot about like who stole the iguana and like victor stole the iguana and and it it all feels not good Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting that you asked the question did anyone talk to max beforehand and on this show we see that um max's parents rarely talk to him about um things that don't have to don't, that don't affect him directly like they go out of their way to teach people how to treat max but rarely do they make the effort of teaching max how to treat other people right um so that was an interesting plot line um joel and julia were just forcing the issue they were trying way too hard and but the thing about that plot that the, the victor plot that i really appreciated is that it, it discusses something that foster children and adoptees talk about all the time. People adopt babies for the express purpose of having themselves be the only family that that child knows or remembers. When people talk about how difficult it is to foster or adopt older kids like Victor, they're half the time they're not even talking about the trauma that these children have endured um, in other homes, but just the fact that the per- this child has a memory of a whole life or a whole family prior to them and that upsets them. But ask yourself why you're so pressed that this child had a life before you. <laughs> Right, exactly. Anyway, the Victor plot is weird. Oh, something else I want to touch on is, so in season four, we also get this episode of, we get, um, in is Jabbar hears nigger for the first time. Well, he hears like, the it says it's nigger, but like, he hears it for the first time. And like, then there's like a talk that happens. I hate this episode, but you really like it. So let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, I, okay, so, 
I when I think about this episode, I have to think about it in like uh, a cultural regional context. If Jabbar was a little black boy being raised in Compton, Watts, Atlanta, Brooklyn, um, literally anywhere in the South, and he had heard nigger for the first time, I'd have been like, mm, y'all reaching. But he is um, being raised in Berkeley, he's being raised by a very respectable black family that does not use that word even colloquially amongst each other. Um, and then he was embraced by his father's white family who are um, shown as people who don't use that word either. Um, and I don't think his mother ever exposed him to rap music before. And he's exposed to for the first time in Crosby studio. So him hearing it for the first time when he's like six, seven years old, makes sense to me if it'd been if he'd been any older than that it would have been unrealistic honestly like if he'd been 10 i'd have been like mm, i'm not feeling it but then jasmine decides that she wants to talk to him and she tells crosby listen you can't be part of this talk because you're not black you can listen but you're like don't jump in which i highly appreciated you white man will never know what it's like to be to to be called that word in an offensive sense and she's trying to prepare her biracial son for being called that word by non-black people so she sits and she has this conversation she tells him how old she was when she first heard that word and crosby is really doing what jasmine said he's listening he's taking it all in after the talk he speaks with her about her experiences with racism because just from who crosby is as a person who the bravermans are as people he really has he really it never crossed his mind that that Jasmine would be a victim of racism or racial discrimination. And when they have this talk, I feel like this episode is so important because race was discussed very superficially in their relationship before. But I feel like if you're going to be in an interracial relationship with a white person, no less, these conversations about the differences between how the both of you are seen and and how you walk through the world have to be had. It's not debatable. <laughs> right. Um, I guess I just, I think my, my beef is like, I don't believe that like, so when I was the first time, like I heard nigger was like, when I was like, I was a, probably like two years younger than Jabbar. And it was definitely by like a white kid. And he was like, that he was just he was calling me a nigger and then threw a soccer ball in my face and which is so rude like calling me nigger wasn't enough for you god white people i can't but That's terrible i'm just like i'm thinking about it now. i'm like wait a second you then he threw a soccer ball in my face that is some rude shit like what you could have just called me a nigger and then stopped it there like but no, we have to go that extra mile of violence because why not? Um, and so that is like, and that's just sort of been like my experience. It's been like my friends' experiences. It's been like everybody I've ever known, like that's their experience, like with that word. And it was, it's not until later when much later, when I start listening to like rap music and hip hop that like, uh, or not even, it's not really much later. I live in the South. Um, I, I start, I was hearing when I was hanging out in black spaces. Yes. I would hear it like colloquially and understood that there was like a different connotation, um, amongst black people. But I think I'm annoyed because I guess I don't believe that like 
that does, I think I'm annoyed because it's like, oh, it happens like when a rapper says it, when it's very much like, you know, like I said, like hearing it in like a negative connotation and that sort of violent, like is, is real, I guess to me. And maybe I'm, maybe it's just like a personal sensitivity thing. Like, and maybe that's why like this episode doesn't hit me because I guess like the initial context of where he's hearing it feels like very white. It feels like, uh, like it feels like what we were talking about in terms of white people not wanting to indict themselves mm-hmm. on like the violence that they, um, exp- like on the, uh, on the violence that they do towards children of color, particularly like when they are children as well. Um, mm-hmm. it felt like, I think that initial scene felt like a cop out and that's why I don't like it. Um, you know, like I said, I have to remove my own experiences from the episode. Um, you know, we, we both grew up in the South and if Jabbar had, or if he'd grown up, you know, anywhere along the East coast, um, I would have probably had a similar opinion as you, um, in my personal experience, I heard, um nigger used in rap songs and had no understanding of of what the word mean except that i knew that it was interchangeable with like person like they use nigger the way that you would say person or people and you know that's that's what that's how i knew the word being used in rap songs growing up um in schools i went to predominantly black schools so um a lot of the kids use that word um colloquially with each other as well and the few white kids that were at our school white kids made up about 10 to 20 percent of the population of all the schools I went through from elementary school through high school like like looking back I felt like maybe some of them wanted to use that word but they were outnumbered so they sat there and ate their food (laughs) um and um the first time anyone used that word uh, towards me was actually I want to say I was to my face gosh I was almost 20 um prior to that um online I was 17 um I was just raised in in very very black centric spaces meanwhile juxtapose that with my cousins who didn't live in weren't raised in South Florida they were raised in Central Florida um, they were called nigger when they were like 10 years old by, by white people. And then I have to juxtapose that to like other cousins who live in Utah. I have like, a, a, a family members who are Mormon, um, and they are visibly biracial and they were born and raised in Utah and they've never been called that because, um, their church community and their school communities don't use that word even though they're surrounded by white people so i definitely think that when you hear the word and how you hear the word is very very specific to your experiences where you grew up and what your school church and work environments were like so i try not to be too hard on that episode because berkeley is not just a very white it's very white liberal and white liberals are people that pride themselves on not saying that word unless you really really make them angry um so <laughs> i'm like right like i only said that because i was mad you guys so i try i i i let that 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 roll off my back because i feel like the 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 proceeding conversations that were had after he heard that word were necessary conversations between jasmine and jabbar and jasmine and crosby those conversations needed to be had 
And um, I, I honestly think it's a cop out when I see interracial couples that don't discuss race on film and television. Y'all lying to yourselves. That's not how that works. Love doesn't conquer all. She's still black. He's still white. <laughs> right. But it is like a very, I mean, the episode, like, I mean, granted, like the episode's fine. It feels kind of after school, especially, but it's fine. Whatever. Um, it does. Like I, it is after school special. <laughs> uh, but, um, but like I said, I, I guess, and I I hear your argument about region specific. That's fair. Um, I guess I just I, I think my sticking point is like I don't know that I believe um, that there is like any region or like any place that you can go, like where like um, that you can go where you know good white people. Uh, <laughs> exist like quote unquote um i agree uh, with that i agree with that for sure um i just think like i said the the age and the context you're going to hear it might vary and i think that even white people who don't say that word and pride themselves on not saying that word they're definitely not exempt from racist behaviors at all Mm. right and which exactly which i mean we'll never see again I think on parenthood. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I don't think we ever see like the Bravermans being like racially like w- weird. Um, now except- that was something I felt was a cop out. The fact that the family's that large and nobody's racist. Like a lot of white people say this, right? They're like, I'm not racist and no one in my family is racist, but like 99.9% of the time, that's a lie. Right. That's a lie. And like Craig T. Nelson, like, the actor himself is very famously racist <laughs> and um, who plays Zeke uh, mm-hmm. is very famously racist. And, um, but like we, but like we were talking about, that's, I think that's just the, when you get like right white, the, when you get white written shows, uh, there are these narratives that are, I think are real about white people in terms of rites of passage that are like violent or not pretty that you'll always see scrubbed out or always see sanitized for the sake of, you know, making white people look like the ideal. Right, right. And I think that's a rather new trend. I want to say the past 30, 35 years of film and television, because there was a time when like bragging about how vicious and cruel they were was like, that was white people's bag. Like now you'll call a white person a colonizer and they'll be in their feelings. But like our history books as children growing up were literally littered with them calling all of their like white idols and historical figures colonizers. Right. (laughs) So no, right. um, They're only like, right. So they're like, I feel like that wanting to white, white people have been, doing like heavy rebrand on their image especially the image of white men for about 30 years now on television um and putting on this 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 media um soundbite that doesn't necessarily reflect their behaviors in real life yeah yeah that's it's mm-hmm. real it's true um so another big plot point that happens is christina is diagnosed with breast cancer Mm-hmm. Right. Th- that was an interesting um, plot because I feel like I didn't want Christina to get cancer. Let me just make that very clear. I don't want 
even a fictional character to have cancer. I do, however, think that this was a necessary thing to um, not so much test her relationship to Adam. That kind of happened last season a little bit, kind of. Like I said, I always knew Adam and Christina would go the distance, but to test their home life. Because when Christina's not there, keeping everything running smoothly, specifically her son Max, the household kind of falls apart. Right. Um, and it's sad to see, like, there's a whole, there was this one episode that made me livid. It still makes me livid thinking about it. Christina is like puking her lungs out and like, like she's sick. She can barely walk. And Max is still demanding things from her. Like, like the character is almost completely void of empathy. You guys, that's what makes, that's what really makes Max Baverman so insufferable. Um, he is just someone who seems completely void of empathy. Christina is weak. She's feverish. She's sweating. She almost faints and falls to the ground. Adam has to catch her before she hits the floor. Um, and she's trying to take care of an infant. She's trying to take care of Max. Max is demanding this for dinner. He's yelling at the baby, a literal baby, to shut up and stop crying. And Christina is up to here. But she still doesn't tell Max off. Adam still doesn't tell Max off. And they're just like, they're, they're, they're juggling like three balls with one hand at this point. And it's sickening to see Max, who is what, 13, 14 years old at this point, can certainly cook his own meals, can certainly, should certainly be responsible enough to watch a baby not do those things. Right. No, absolutely. I agree with all of that. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, your mom is literally dying. Um, But Christina makes a new friend, Gwen Chambers, um, who is played by the actress Rose Abdu. She played Gypsy on Gilmore Girls. And they become friends while in chemo. Adam really has to step up to the plate. But, again, the Bravermans, no man left behind. They really step up for her. Literally, as soon as Zeke learns that she has cancer, he puts his pants on. He's like, I gotta go see my daughter-in-law. So he goes to see her at the hospital. I often asked in the first two, three seasons, where are Joel and Christina's parents? Because they're very much team Bravermen. We learned this season that... Christina's very estranged from her mom. She wants to have a a better relationship with her, but like she calls her mom and tells her she has cancer and her mom does not show up. And it's um, Camille who comes to her house and, you know, runs things for her when she, she can't because she can't depend on her own mother, which is really sad. We don't talk about Drew enough, and that's because they were really playing games with him first season. Like, so many episodes we in season one, we didn't even see him. But Drew comes back with a vengeance season two. And by season four, season three, he had the girlfriend, Amy. They got together, um, and then they had sex at um, Crosby and Jasmine's wedding. In season four, she breaks up with him for an older guy, and they get back together. And when they get back together, she gets pregnant, and there's this whole plot of her having an abortion and Drew wanting to be supportive, but Amy pushing him away. Um, and I thought that was an interesting thing to talk about because the, the Bravermans are obviously a family that would support and accept any member of their family as one of their own. And so usually we don't see these type of abortion pl- plot lines in such big family settings. And I thought that was interesting. And I don't think it's something he ever shared with anyone other than Amber right real 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 yeah that was oh yeah 
how abortions are, but it was nice. And I like that he, like, like you said, was really working to be supportive of her and, and whatever she wanted to do. And, and that's nice. Drew is really cool. And one thing I've noticed about TV characters who are like, like not completely insufferable and actually like good partners to the women in their lives, they're surrounded by women. Like you'll have this, this male character who was raised by a single mom with a sister or a bunch of sisters or his grandma and like their head and shoulders above their male counterparts that were raised with heavy male influences. Now I don't know how true this is offline, in media, it's something that I see quite often. If you want a sensitive guy, you want a kind guy, you want someone that has a good relationship with his mom and his older sister. Um, he has his moments, but he's young. But he definitely tries to be a good boyfriend to Amy and be a supportive partner to her. He doesn't give her a hard time or a guilt trip about having the abortion and really doesn't really get into his feelings until she basically like breaks up with him as a side effect of... Of all of this. Right. Right. And Um, that's when he gets in his feelings. But Amber really steps in and she's really supportive of him post breakup, which is really sweet. Right. Um, Oh, also Heidi comes back uh, from, she comes back from college because she knows that somebody needs to get Max together in the wake of this cancer diagnosis. And it's fun to see Heidi come back to the Braverman household. Right. I love Hattie. I think, like she is probably the best person equipped to raise Max. And I think that if God forbid anything happened to um, Christina and Adam, um, she, I think she'd be better at parenting Max and her than their actual parents. I'm not not even going to lie, but she comes back because she knows her mother needs help. Adam is working. Max is Max. (laughs) Max. And somebody's got to take care of that baby, Nora. And, Nora, and, and, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, oh God, like I'm coming home. Um, and she does, and it's great to see her. Uh, so season four, good, bad, or basic? Um, so I would have said that season four was good, except two things that really deeply annoyed me: Joel and Julia trying to push their family onto Victor so quickly and so fast and Amber getting involved with this Afghanistan vet Ryan who oh wow li- we listen we all know that Ryan is damaged no shade to the vets listening to this episode but Ryan is damaged and he doesn't even take full scope of how damaged he is and Amber is someone who's had a very unstable life. I want better for her than Ryan. So I think just off that, I'm going to say the season was basic. <laughs> just off of that alone. Yeah, the, the hard thing about the Ryan plot is that, like, Ryan just doesn't want to work to get better. Like, getting better is hard. Like, and you, but you have to do it. And he doesn't want it. It's like, he's fine being damaged. Like, he's like, yeah, this is just what I do now, which is like, okay, but that's fair. That's fine. Like, that's a perfectly valid decision for you to make for yourself. But at the same time, you Mm. can't like expect other people to, um, want to take that on. Um, anyway, so, well, season four, I think season four is still (laughs) good. I listen, I, 
I think it's good. I hate that after school specialty episode, but I, I, I would still give it a stamp of good. Um, um, I think the direction is strong. I think I don't like this Victor plotline. Um, I hate it. Like even all the way to like episode 12, there's like a, ugh. but, um, I, I would it teeter, but it's like on the, it's on the edge of being basic. It's like the bare, barest of goods. It's not like a, it's not like a solid good. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a quarter good. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff was just so weird about season four. Mark it, which is like a character that they just keep on reintroducing and dropping off and reintroducing and dropping off. Like that relationship finally comes to an end because um, Sarah is fl- flirting with a line and towing a line with her boss, Hank, played by Ray Romano. And Mark sees this and ends the relationship. And he says something to Sarah that I thought was actually really poignant. He's like, listen, I don't know what it is in you that likes to run from things that are good, but I'm not doing this with you no more. <laughs> listen, fair. That is some deep ass, fair ass shit. Um, episodes of season four, I think to, to watch, uh, I would watch the opener season four, episode one, family portrait. There's this like fun bit about Mark can't be in like the family photo, which is because Crosby ruined it for everybody. That's funny. Season four, episode three, everything is not okay. Season four, episode four, the talk, which is um, exactly what it sounds like. Season four, episode six, I'll be right here. Season four, episode, yeah, season four, episode seven, together. Season four, episode eight, one more weekend with you. Season four, episode 10, Trouble in Candyland. Season four, episode 12, Keep on Rowing. It's like this really sweet little Adam and Christina episode where like Christina is like getting her wigs um, after like her round of chemo, Um, which why do they always put like ugly wigs on white people though? What's happening? They really need some black people to start working in these wig departments. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like I feel like part of it is that white people don't know what a good wig or a good weave looks like, right? Like you could have a busted wig and white black people will tell you that that wig is trash, but white people are like, "Oh my god, your hair looks so good." And it's like right. they honestly can't they honestly can't tell that A, it's a wig and B, it's a shitty wig. So, and they bring these these ideologies over to their own wig selection. <laughs> um you know, um, decisions. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure other white people think that shit is cute too. Like if they had a black friend though, the black friend would tell them that was trash. Right. They'd be like, girl, that's a no. Like, um, and it's possible. Cause I listen, just white people fix your wig game. Um, and then season four, episode 13, small victories season four, episode 14, one step forward, two steps back, and then season four, episode 15, Because You're My Sister. Yeah, I thought the whole thing with Victor and Sydney was resolved a bit too quickly. Because like I said, her saying that your mom doesn't love you, I think was especially cruel. And there's never an apology from Sydney right. to Victor. <laughs> and it's... And it's especially cruel because in season, one of the episodes I just recommended, Keep on Rowing, 12, 
Victor essentially is taking calls from his mother again because his mother is reaching out to him. Mm-hmm. And Joel and Julia, like, stop it. <laughs> They're like, they don't even try to, like, facilitate. Um, they're like, you can't see your mother. And he goes, but she's my mom. And he, by the way, that actor who plays the child actor who plays Victor has like the most amazing side eye. He looks at them and he's like, she's my mom. She's trying to talk to me. Like I should at least be able to be friends with her. And they're like, right. But you, you can't. And I'm like, Ooh, but Ooh, like, and it's, it's just, Oh, the whole thing is sad and hard. Yeah, I mean, that's not completely on them because I believe this happens before Victor is legally adopted. And like when you're in foster care, like they actually don't let you reach out to your family members, either the person you were taken away from or any like actual biological family. Like you're not you, you can't like reach out to them, which is, I think, cruel and a part of a system that, you know, is was put in place to separate black, brown and indigenous families. But that's that's. That's, that's a, a whole other discussion. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole different discussion. But um, they remember they went to the old neighborhood like exactly one time um, right. to pick up to pick up um, his friend and bring the friend back to their house to play, and we never saw that friend again. Um, again. Victor's old friend from his old neighborhood. There's so, also this plot where they attempt to learn Spanish and then they like never do. <laughs> Girl, listen, that shit was so weak. <laughs> That show was so weak. Like, I hate it. Um, so, like, I'm not, I'm really, like, you guys, you know, I, I try not to nitpick, but, like, there was so many things that were aggy about season four for me. So, let's just jump into season five. Five, really quick. exactly. Well, let's do this. Um, season four, Jasmine had found out that she's pregnant, and in season five, like, we basically fast forward nine months, Jasmine gives birth to their daughter, Aida. And there's a whole subplot for a couple of episodes where she wants the child to be named Trisel Braverman and he just wants the child's last name to be Braverman. Um, uh, Hank, who had left Sarah after Mark left her, um, he left in season four to be closer to his daughter whose mother was moving her to another state. But he's mysteriously back in town because, quote, Minnesota didn't work out for me. Okay. That's not a real reason. It's not a real reason if you left to be with your child. That's not a real reason. And Hank becomes a mentor for Max, who has an interest in and an aptitude for photography. So, yeah. um, um, Oh, and Christina runs for mayor. These are major plots. Right. So, let's, um, let's talk a bit about, first of all, Let's talk. It's really cute to see that all American reject singer show up in season five. I had forgotten that he was like, he ended up like in the early 2000s. He had like booked like a bunch of like acting roles and was like pretty decent at them. So I don't know why he stopped that because that was really good. That could have been a cute transition for him. Yeah, Tyson Ritter was trying to get these checks. Um, but I think he just he put his focus back on the band. Like, fun fact, um, that's actually why Jared Leto started acting, because he wanted to bring attention to his band, 30 Seconds to Mars. Then he got so good at it, he was he, the band became the part-time thing and the acting became the full-time thing. And I guess um. I guess Tyson didn't want to do his band like that. So he he really buckled down and got serious after this period of just like writing and touring and all that stuff. But he actually was a decent actor, even though on, on 
on um on parenthood he was more or less acting as himself <laughs> right or like like a heightened version of himself um right uh, yeah, because he's in this. He shows up in, like, I think the House Bunny. Uh, he also shows up, like, in a bunch of other random early 2000 properties. Um, and it's it's always, I feel like that's always, like, a very time-specific, um, like, when I see him, I'm like, oh, I'm watching something from the early 2000s. Also, uh, it's cute to see Journey Smollett, um be or now I guess her name was like Journey Smollett Bell uh show up also another parenthood um Friday Night Lights casting crossover uh Journey Smollett Bell who would go on to Underground uh, which we'll talk about in our gone which we'll just be talking about later in a later season um great to see her in in season five episode two um but let's get into, yikes, where to start? Okay, you know what? I want to talk about, let's talk about Drew some more. Let's talk about Drew and this friends with, benefit, friends with benefits relationship with Natalie. That's so sweet. This, this, this was so interesting to me because it's something that a lot of guys, including Drew's roommate, would think is a boon, right? Like, I get to, like, sleep with a girl without being serious with her, which is what Natalie offers Drew. But Drew wants a relationship. Like, Drew wants commitment and, and tenderness and all that good shit. Honestly, if I had, if, I, if Drew was a real person and I knew him, I'd be like, honey, you're not built for that life. <laughs> If I didn't know him, I'd have been like, "You're not built for that." You, you, you're not, you're not made for friends with benefits, Drew. Sit that one out. Sit that one out, babe. But like his sweet little heart, he just goes, he dives like head in, and it's cute. And then like, yeah, he's like, he's trying to like talk to her and like be super sweet and like you know trying to essentially like be in a relationship. And she's like, "What are you doing?" Ah. <laughs> uh, and yeah oh drew i love drew drew's great um drew and his roommate is interesting so he has this roommate who who he really doesn't like and um he doesn't like the roommate for a lot of reasons the guy never studies but he makes great grades he's uh an athlete he's really loud he doesn't understand cues of when someone wants to be left alone he raids their fridge all the time so he actually confronts drew and he's like let's talk it out like both my parents parents are therapists like tell me all the shit you hate about me man it's cool and i think his roommate is actually a pretty well-adjusted person and you don't want to like him but you end up liking him <laughs> you do you end up really liking him <laughs> i love the roommate i think he's so funny um Okay, so something else I want to jump into, because I just wanted to talk about something that was happy before we got into this. But let's get into this emotional affair that Julia has with this, like, single father. Oh, yeah, Ed. So she, well, he's not, he was on the verge of getting a divorce when they met, right? His life was still living there, I believe. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and then afterward um he gets a divorce and their affair emotional affairs alex said has gone on so far that julia even has to ask are you guys separating because of me right 
<laughs> right. And like they're sending each other like cute little texts and talking all the time. And he's like her comfort and her support. And all I can think about, literally all I can think about is season one and how many of these soccer moms were just trying to throw Joel the pussy. And he was like <laughs> trying to throw throw it through it so hard at him. <laughs> like it worked. <laughs> like, like the girl with the lower back tattoo. That let me say something. That woman worked so hard. She put in so much effort. So much effort. He had moms inviting him to the park. He had moms inviting um, um him to like the, the sauna or the infinity pool at their house. He had moms trying to meet him for the matinee feature to get it popping. Like Joel was neck deep in unwanted, unsolicited um stay-at-home mom puss. But Julia had one guy give her some attention when she's been out of work for a few months and Joel's been working for a few months and she's like cracking around the edges. Like she literally only knows how to make that relationship work when Joel is the one sacrificing on her behalf, not the other way around. And she cracks and she cracks because of like because Joel has this female like co-worker essentially, right? who mm-hmm. is, I think, a project manager or something. And it's literally, it's such a professional relationship between them uh, with just like, I think, just mild, I think, not even friendship, but like, um, just like that rapport that I think you have to have with your coworkers if you ever want to like be happy working somewhere. Um, and she sort of like, she sort of spirals from it. Like, and it's wild. I'm just like, wait, what? Like, and it's lame because like it, he's literally never given her a reason. Like not once, not even in like, like you said, when he was drowning in it. Um, cause, and he, she just sort of, because of that and because of like the job and because of everything else, she just spirals into this thing that feels so freaking selfish, <laughs> but it's so right. on brand for Julia. <laughs> No, but you know what's interesting too? When she accuses him of of like of like having feelings with or flirting with this project manager, it's long after she's been doing the same thing with Ed. For me, that's a hit dogs will holler situation. You're accusing him of some shit to alleviate your own guilt about what you're doing. Right. Right. Like, exactly. That, it was so messed up, you guys. And let's be clear here, when I say sacrifices, um, all Joel sacrificing is extra time with the family, which is something she did all the time. Julia didn't sacrifice her career for Joel. It, she was, I repeat, fired from her law firm over something that she did. So it's not like um, they had a talk and she decided to not work for a few years to support him for a change. She was literally fired. And that's when Joel decided he was going to get back to work. Right. And so she's just she's doing a lot like she's doing a lot for no good reason and I wonder if it's like maybe I think I could get with Julia and I could get with all of this all this shit that's happening from from the Zoe adoption baby story to the emotional affair story if there was something in the narrative that like showed me that Julia was like acting out in this way because she's sort of aware of like how shittily she treated Joel these years. And it's, and she's acting out in all these different ways because now she's like afraid that the same way that she treated him is going to be the same way he's about to treat her. I feel like I could have gotten on board with like 
each and every single one of these plots if there was just some small thing from the script to tell me like she's it's all just like a fear and that's why she's acting out in all these different ways right right and but the thing is like the julia character has no self-awareness never has and she really believes in her righteous anger not necessarily when she accuses joel of cheating but more when she um accuses him of of um not being there for the family like she actually believes the words that are coming out of her mouth and i'm like sis take a seat Take a take a step back. Take let's let's evaluate. You're yeah, and that's essentially what it is. That's what kind of that's what bugs me about like this Julia, but but then but then honestly like if but but like I said, I guess that's super on track with her and on track of with who her character is. But I think it would have. But even after all of this, because then all because all of this sort of snowballs into Joel leaving, right? right and you know what he doesn't even leave over ed so their emotional affair comes out when ed makes a scene at like um sydney school um during some parents night or some fundraiser and joel realizes a thing he suspected hasn't going on and there's been some sort of flirtation but joel doesn't even leave her over this he tells her straight up i supported you for years you couldn't even support me for a few months i'm done which fair like that's enough to like be like finished, um, and I think so. Yeah, it all spirals to Joel leaving, and I think I would have if if in the period that Joel left, she had like done some self reflection and was like, "Shit!" Like I was scared. Like. And it could be really small. I don't need it to be big. It could be like a small conversation with Adam or or Sarah or somebody or one of the, her siblings to be like, I treated him. I like spiraled because uh, I was always scared he was going to treat me the way I treated him. I would have been like, okay, cool. Right. Or even if she said what we all know to be true, I treated him that badly because I have control issues and not being the breadwinner scared me. Right. That's what was, that was what's happening now. They were they were basically living off Joel's um, income now. If he's like Julia does have control issues. That is a thing. Or, you know, I cheat. I cheated him the way that I did because my identity is wrapped up in my work and I felt lost when I wasn't working. All of these things are real and valid to the Julia character, but this analysis, like Alex said, was never made. Right, it's never made. For a show who, that, that, where the writing is so strong, it, this feels like an oversight. I think what bothered me the most about the goings-on in um, season five is that... Even when they were separated, Joel was still not seeing any new people. Joel was very much trying to focus on his work and focus on his kids, Sydney and Victor. Um, Joel, 
and, and this is the thing, and this is why I feel like that didn't make any sense. Joel is a good guy, but the Joel that they have on Parenthood is damn near martyr territory. So what happened in season three with um, Adam's flirtation with their little receptionist is a storyline that I would actually more better believe and would make more sense with Joel because his marriage has been on the rock since day one. And I think Joel is someone who after splitting with Julia should have been seen at least attempting to date other people at least once. Um, I feel like the Joel character deserved that. And the Joel character is absolutely someone whom, um, as bad as I feel about him now, I think if their gender roles would were reversed, the audience could see just how poorly Joel was treated. <laughs> True. Yeah, I definitely know. Yeah, I definitely think that you, if you reverse, if you gender reverse those roles, like you definitely have an audience that goes up for Joel. And I think, and like you said, there is like a martyrdom type, like edge that the show flirts towards with Joel. And I think they do it in an effort to like, not make Joel come off as like insensitive, but I I think they just made a wrong calculation there. I I do think you should have like a period of Joel seeing other people because we already know that Joel is somebody who has options. Right. Joel has Joel, Joel has lots of options. And you know, when I say the gender reversal, like I'm not even saying that lightly. Consider that Joel was a powerful corporate lawyer that really didn't ask about his wife's day half the time um, and didn't ask her opinion before doing things. And then she gets fired. Wife goes, he gets fired. Wife goes back to work and he immediately starts in on an emotional affair because he feels like less of a man. Like this is a storyline that would anger people, but they do it to Joel. And like, it's just, his responses are just not realistic to me. (laughs) Right. They're not realistic. And, um, I'm trying to, because this isn't, like, a show that I think people, like, talked about a lot on social media, but I, so I don't have any, like, frame of reference to engage a sort of dialogue of, um, like, what that audience reception was, but listeners, if anybody goes back and watches Parenthood uh, before or while you're listening to this, like, let us know what you think. Because I'd be interested to know how it reads back. For sure, for sure. Um, And I agree with Alex. I think the Joel character was their one... I mean, and you're allowed one stumbling block with an ensemble cast so large. I just didn't expect them to stumble so hard um, with Joel. Um, We have, like, the quote-unquote sensitive men being portrayed on this show before. We have Mark. We have Drew. Um... And those characters never come off like they're they're um, being martyred to come off as the sensitive, evolved male. And how evolved do you want someone to be, actually? Like, if I'm sep- if he's separated from his wife and he moved out, um, I would expect Joel to be seeing other people. Right. Like, he has needs. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so I want to talk a bit about uh, this, this Hank asperger's diagnosis thing that happens 
Right. So it's in season five when Hank comes back, when he actually starts seeing the the therapist that they went to for Max, who supposedly was really, really hard to see. But Hank got a, a, um, 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 Adam and Christina helped him see this doctor and he diagnoses Hank with Asperger's as well. And what's interesting is as much as we go up about Max and his Asperger's portrayal being highly unrealistic and mildly offensive to people with Asperger's Hank is actually really, really great portrayal of an adult with Asperger's syndrome, which I thought was interesting. (laughs) So now I don't know how much of Max's behavior was done by the writers as a portrayal of his Asperger's and how much of it was him being a little spoiled white boy. Right. Exactly. Because you have this, like, so Hank gets essentially diagnosed with Asperger's and it's a really like moving, really, I think, great plot and storyline and it's great to watch um and it essentially comes about because he relates to max super well um because max takes up an interest in photography um and then begins spending more time with hank and hank sort of then realizes oh this is why i was never able to make my relationships work this is why um, I've always had trouble with people like this is like and um, it's very like moving and emotionally great. And I think it's well paced and it's beautiful to see. So it's like, OK, you got this right. And this is what I was saying about like maybe this is like Hank, Hank getting to this Asperger's, Asperger's diagnosis, I think, shows how much the language changed around the around Asperger's. Um in the time because you have max that is like ridiculous. And then you have this Hank portrayal. That's, that's really wonderful and really moving. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately the max portrayal doesn't stop being ridiculous. Oh my <laughs> gosh. It becomes, doesn't. It becomes more ridiculous, <laughs> more ridiculous. So max is essentially the most ridiculous person and in a plot. And, and instead of Adam and Christina being like, Oh, like we're gonna, because Max is essentially mainstreaming in school, like he's going to like regular school um, because he is uh, academically gifted. And Max, you know, is Max. And instead of Adam and Christina being like, wow, like we should teach our child boundaries. They're like, we're going to create a whole school just for Max. Yeah, yeah, they create a whole school just for Max. Um, but let's let's be fair here. The tipping point of all of this was um, Max went on a, a, a school trip and bullies peed in his canteen, and That's that true. was the final straw. And I'm not gonna lie, when after this event, when Max says he doesn't want to go to school, I was very much Team Max, and I was side eyeing Adam and Christina for telling him that he had to go. I'm like, are you serious? They literally just violated your child and you're trying to make him go back to school right now. Like, give him a few moments to grieve. And this is what I'm talking about. Like, when they should be putting their foot down with Max, they don't. And when they should, like, be comforting him, that's when they choose to be firm. I am not having my child going back to a school where 
his canteen was peed in and he was bullied on a trip where I wasn't even there to like help him or see what was going on or anything like that. Like, no, you're not going back to that environment. And like the school does nothing about it. Why would you want your child to go back to that environment? So I think when they realize Max is serious and he's really not trying to go back to the school, that's when, um, their, their charter school later named Chambers Academy becomes like a real idea that Christina wants to see through to fruition. I definitely think that the Max bullying storyline was one that needed to be told. I'm glad that they didn't actually show us the bullying, but just more the aftermath of the bullying. Um, that's a very real thing that people with disabilities, especially those with at- autism or a mental disability or learning disability do go through. But I, I wish that they had actually like moved this up to like maybe show us something like this in season two or three. Because in season two and three, they needed it. I think they, I don't, I mean, I hate to say they needed it to elicit like empathy for Max, but like they needed it to elicit empathy for Max. I think. Right. Not only that, but because there's so much else, so many other subplots going on, the charter school angle feels rushed in season five. This all of this happens between like the middle of season five to the end of season six is this whole of them having the charter school, running the charter school, you know, all that jazz. And it feels very, very rushed. It feels like Adam and Christina are just flying by the seat of their pants, which is to be expected. It's a new venture, but they really don't seem to have a handle on things when the school first opens. Max is much older. And I'm I've ever since the the episode where they went to see Blanche, Zeke's grandmother, I mean, excuse me, Zeke's mother for her birthday, and Max calls Christina a bitch. I've been viscerally aware of how much bigger and stronger than her he is. Mm. And and it's really hard to empathize with Max and some of the things he does in season five, because even though his parents might see him as a little boy, um, I'm very aware of how he would come across as intimidating or threatening to a teenage girl, which happens later this season. Right. Oh, is it is that whole Dylan plotline later in season five and not six six? Um, Dylan, 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 Dylan. No, that happens in season six. Yeah, it happens later right. next season. And we'll talk about and we'll definitely talk about that because I really do want to talk about that because it's a mess um, from beginning to end. So other things that happen, Hattie has like a girlfriend. Good for Hattie. Um, that she brings home to meet her parents. Uh, and she's rocking like a really great feather blonde look. Good for Hattie. Hattie looks amazing. She's prospering, thriving as um, a feather blonde bisexual woman. In case anybody ever doubts that white people engage in colorism or like don't understand race or like or color or some bullshit, just know that they found a whole white baby for Aida. When that Aida's was in my notes. Sized. That was in my notes. They really got a whole white baby for this shit. <laughs> Anytime anyone like just doubts that, just remember that they literally would not, could not even be bothered to find a melanated child. Um, of all messes but i want to talk about that storyline really quickly we see this white ass baby when aida gets baptized like we get off like a full frontal view of how white this baby is around aida's baptism joel and julia were originally asked to be the godparents and then 
um, Crosby asked Joel to drop out to not make things awkward for Julia. And like Joel shows up at the baptism, just looking super sad in the pews, you guys. And my heart breaks for Joel, I swear. Poor Joel, which is like, I think it's kind of rude. Like, don't you, I mean, I guess like you do have to choose like your blood relative in the divorce. Like, but still it feels upsetting. Right. And like Julia, Julia could have put an end to the whole thing because then when Crosby tells her that um he asked Joel to drop out and Joel was okay with it, Julia's like, well, he didn't even fight for me. I'm like, sis, you could have just told your brother not to ask him to step down. <laughs> right? You could have just been like, no, like, <laughs> sense is, things that make sense don't occur to Julia. So like, sometimes I, I don't want to be, I don't want to blame her for them. Um, <laughs> like, it's not her fault. She doesn't make sense, you guys. <laughs> this is just where she lives. Um, also, Sarah finds her own sort of quasi Logan Huntsberger this season and, you know, <laughs> breaks up with him. Mm-hmm. Has, she starts dating Carl he's fine he's rich he want to take her on trips he, he said girl get your passport ready and then Hank goes in and he's like you need to prioritize yourself Sarah aka you need to stay in Berkeley with me Sarah and then she does it like I don't know how how better to prioritize myself and my self care than to be flying business class with a wealthy man right and then I'm gonna get like <laughs> like to go on vacation, fly business class, stay in like a five-star hotel and then get digged down really good. Like what, what is, that's all self-care to me. I don't even know. I don't, yeah. I don't understand what is there to think about. And like, and he even says this to her prior when, um, she wants to get the job to take the campaign headshots for Christina and like her, like Adam and Christina are wary about it. Like Hank says to her straight up, you're flighty. Now it's photography. Before then, it was um, playwriting. Um, before then, you were graphic designing for the shoe company. Before then, you were a bartender. Before then, you were writing songs for your ex. Like, you're really, really flighty. And then when she, you know, decides to just, like, embrace her flighty nature and take flights, um, <laughs> <laughs> Hank wants her to stay in Berkeley. Why, sis? Why? what exactly uh why um uh two things really quickly bisexual hattie is my favorite form of hattie um she looks amazing that haircut is like what's up she looks amazing she's glowing she's clearly getting her needs met um and i want to discuss really quickly the um amber ryan plot so amber um ryan without amber's consent knowledge discussion permission whatever um re-enlists he gets quickly deployed he comes back in season five in the opening of season five and he proposes to amber this girl's nail polish is always chipped that's a pet peeve you guys he proposes to amber and she accepts because i guess it's something to do and like we all know that's not going to end well, but it's Amber and she's someone who needs to learn from her mistakes. So she accepts Ryan's proposal in season five. We all know that's going to crash and burn, but we want to like see it happen. And we kind of see like the byproduct of that in season six. I think it's more or less well handled. And I also think that like proposing to Amber is in character for Ryan and accepting is in character for Amber. I remember like, thinking to myself like this is an accident waiting to happen oh yeah it was a mess from the beginning yeah um 
Uh, did we already miss the season when Camille goes to Italy too? Did that happen already? Uh, no, I think that happens next season. Yeah. In season six. Okay. Okay. So we didn't miss it. All right. So what do we think of season five, Alex? Season five. I want to say it's because like I said, this Joel Julia thing is like, ugh, and then like, um, you know, I think season five is just basic. Like there's a, there is a fumble in season five with, 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 I think several different things. Um, so I think I am giving it like a basic. Yeah. I'm going to give it a basic as well. Bordering on bad. Like for me, the things that made season four basic were like personal feeling things and not objective things. But in season five, there are things objectively wrong with the writing. I feel. Yeah. And I think on a show where the writing is so strong, where, where I'm, I'm personally grading a little harder just because I know that they can do better. They can do better. They can do better. I do like the fact that they that there was actually a conversation had between Hattie and Amber and basically, you know, um, Hattie saying to her, you know, I didn't feel like I was missing anything with Alex, but I love being with her. So they, they very much clear up the fact that Alex was not some sort of experiment in heterosexuality for Hattie. She did have real sexual feelings for him. I did like Amber telling Hattie, like, you know, Hattie being the first person to learn that Amber was pregnant. Like there were, there were really great moments of like really beautiful things like Zeke giving Drew the Pontiac convertible that he and Victor had been working on Zeke teaching Victor how to read by working on that car. There were so many beautiful moments, but a lot of the stuff got lost in the sauce because the major plots were just like, they left, they left a bad taste in my mouth. Right. Exactly. No, I I agree with all of that. Season five, episode one, it has to be now. Season five, episode two, all aboard, who's coming aboard? Yeah, so season five, episode four, in dreams begin responsibilities. Season five, episode five, let's be mad together. Season five, episode six, the M word. Season five, episode nine, election day. That's like this whole like Chris, like the, I think the resolution of this, like Christina runs for mayor plot. Season five, episode 12, stay a little longer. Season five, episode 13, jump ball. That's the episode I think where I want to say like John Corbett shows up again. So it's great to see him and don't quote me on this, but I think that's also the episode where like like Crosby's trying to get Jabbar to do other things besides like do ballet. And then season five, episode 14, you've got mold season five, episode 17 limbo season five, episode 18, the offer season five, episode 19 fraud alert season five, episode 21. I'm still here. And season five, episode 22, the Pontiac. Yeah, there, I mean, there were so many beautiful episodes. I think one of my, my favorite standout moment from season five is when I want to say it's um, when Drew Drew gets the Pontiac and the first thing he does is go to Natalie's house and um, they both realize that they're really not trying to be friends with benefits anymore and they lock it down. The whole scene just feels so teenage dream. It's so adorable. <laughs> 
<laughs> like who what boy doesn't want to pick up his girl in his in, in a Pontiac convertible you guys right um, it's a it's a really nice car so let's jump into season six season six is their last season it's 13 episodes and we open in season six with julia getting dicked down by another good white man the boyfriend she had in stanford right before she started dating joel um who works at the new law firm that she's working at and so she's living her best life joel's still not seeing anybody his dick has been dry for a minute which is so rude so rude so rude we have an Aida that's fine. That's taking her first step. She's black. Thank goodness. They finally got us up another biracial kid. Racial and not that little not that little white child that was getting baptized. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah takes Zeke to Vegas for his birthday. That made me feel some type of way because they've never done anything like that for their mom. But okay. Right? <laughs> um, like they don't do anything nice for Camille. <laughs> never. Camille doesn't get nice things. Yeah, actually, it was the season prior to this that um, that she went to Italy, and then the family kind of got mad at her for like leaving Zeke on his own. But I'm like, like, why are you incompetent? Why can't you just cook your own meals until your wife gets back? Or you could have just gone with her, like she asked you to. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's sad that he couldn't do this one thing for his wife. She's not asking you to move to Italy. She's not asking you to live in Italy. She's not asking you to invest in it- Italian property. All she's asking you to do is take a trip with her after over 50 years of marriage. And you can't do that for your wife. Thing, right. Which is really wild. Especially considering that the art teacher that she had the one night stand with is is on going on this trip too. So for no other reason than to like keep an eye on her, I guess, I would have assumed that he would want to come. Um, but Zeke doesn't do that. And, and, and Millie is, is, um, you know, Sarah comes over cause again, Sarah is Zeke's favorite and he's her favorite and she brings him food and stuff like that while Millie is gone. And she takes him on this trip in season six for Vegas for his birthday. And, um, while he's in Vegas, he collapses. And that's what the big, bigger plot of season six is that Zeke needs surgery and the doctor tells him this will happen again. And it cannot happen when he's behind the wheel of a car or let's say walking up or down a flight of stairs. That's going to be a problem. Like he could have died. Right. And he will die next time. And so he, he's having a hard time considering whether or not he should do this. But later when Amber tells him that she is pregnant, um, um, he tells her that he's not disappointed. He's happy. And this is the what he needs to push him over the edge to make that decision because he wants to live to see his great-grandchild. What do I... What do we... So, yeah, I think the fact that Zeke even is sort of... The fact that he's debating on whether he's going to take care of his health properly or not is silly. And, like, even... And I don't know. Like, I think personally... I was just sort of like, you should be so lucky that you want to decide whether you want to take care of your health or not, because lots of people just don't have the choice because they don't have insurance uh, or they're too like or when they get to this part of their life, they can't like afford it and they just have to deal with whatever Mm. they have to deal with. So personally, that felt sort of like, but but that's just like a personal thing. I think Zeke sort of being in this, you know, will he won't he is is very on track for his character 
Right. It is on track for his character. And he's a very stubborn man. He's a lot like Julia in that way that they both like being in control. And this felt like something that was out of his control because the odds of him dying in surgery were also fairly good. Um, But then the odds of him dying as a result of not getting surgery were definite. And I, my whole thing is like, maybe if he were younger, I would understand Like maybe you could think something like fixing your diet or exercising would help you because you don't want to risk dying um, in surgery when you have young kids to raise, but you're not raising anybody anymore. You're an old man. So really all you can do is add years or go out after having lived a very long, fulfilling life. And like Alex said, other people don't get those options. They don't have insurance. Or in many cases, they don't have a warning. The first heart attack or the first collapse is their last. Right. And then it's and it's <laughs> over. Um, they don't get they don't come back from that. But uh he but it is good to see, um, particularly in happy birthday, Zeke, um, which is when I think Amber tells him that she's pregnant. Let's okay, so let's get into this this Dylan Max plot that happens in season six. Ooh, I feel like we talk about Max so much, but you guys, he's just he does so much. <laughs> he does so much. Like, and it's wild. So from the beginning, and I think we even mentioned this in our previous episodes, there there's so much about like Max that feels like um like baby incel. And then it, and I feel like this Max Dillon plot comes like full in so, like in a way. Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah. For me, the incel actually started this season because before, like, he would do, he would, he would like engage in a lot of like unsavory behavior, but he had didn't really have any interest in girls yet. Then when this interest peaked, that's when like the shit really hit the fan. So he meets this girl, Dylan, who's a transfer student to Chambers Academy. She doesn't have any disability or anything like that, but Chambers Academy prides itself on being an open, tolerant environment, and she'd been kicked out of a few other schools. So so she starts here. She really likes Max and has a great rapport with Max. Christina immediately doesn't like the girl because she thinks that either she's making fun of Max or that she will be a bad influence on Max or that um, she'll hurt Max's feelings in some way. And then because of this initial belief, it colors everything that Christina does from there on out because Max is, um, becomes the one who is, um, is making unwanted advances in their, in that relationship. And instead of protecting Dylan, the girl, the student, her student, okay, she doesn't do that and proceeds to coddle her son in a way that is above and beyond even for Christina, Right. Like, I mean, it's completely out of the realm of logic and and out of like logic, even for Christina as a character. Yeah, it's just it's entirely too much. Christina is someone that prides herself on like protecting young girls, setting good boundaries. I know that if it was Amber or Hattie in a similar situation, she would have got that shit under control, but she didn't. But she didn't. Because she's so wrapped up in this fact that, like, Max even likes somebody. Right. And it's fine. Um, I, I think it's more to do with the fact that Max is Asperger's, right? Because kids have their first crush all the time. 
if if there if if those crushes are requited and mutual, like how long is a relationship gonna last between a couple of fourteen year olds, fifteen year olds? Not very long, right? Like a parent has to prepare themselves for the day that their kid is going to face rejection. It's gonna happen to every kid. But Christina goes to the world assuming that her kid shouldn't be rejected because he has Asperger's. So in this Dylan storyline. Um, Dylan becomes close with Max because her parents are not around a lot and she really likes being at his parents' house, which is a behavior that I actually saw like facets of with the Alex character, Hattie's ex-boyfriend. But with Dylan, it's definitely ramped up a notch. She's definitely more interested in the family, um, Adam, Christina, and Nora than she is in Max. Max is interested in her, but she never actually leads Max on. She doesn't. She makes it very clear that her only interest in Max personally is friendship and talk and just talking and just in literally just having a rapport. Right. But Max says something that's like really troubling to me. And this, this is something he said to Hank's daughter when he meets her in season five, where he sees her, she's really pretty, and she's like, will you go out with me? And she's like, no. And he's like, well, you're a guy, I'm a girl, we have all the right parts, why not? And Hank tries to like tell her to be nicer to Max, and it's Sarah that has to step in and be like, are you really trying to pimp your daughter out to Max because he has Asperger's? Like, he's a kid, rejection is a part of life. Like, Sarah is the only person that's realistic about the way that she treats Max and the way that he views Max. Like, Sarah's not here for this coddling bullshit, and I think she actually would have made a better mom to Max than Christina. Right. In their interactions is when I actually see Sarah shine as a parent. She's like, yeah, he has Asperger's, but that's no reason to give him everything he wants. That's no reason for him to be an asshole. (laughs) Right. So this whole Dylan plot culminates in sort of Dylan... First of all, like... Does he harass her before or after she kisses that other boy? Both. I mean, yeah. So he's, (laughs) so Max is like just harassing her. Like, and it is harassment. Um, and it is like textbook definition of harassment. And it all culminates when Dylan finds another kid at the school that she likes, um, in a romantic way. And, Max spots them kissing and that's when it 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 blows up blows up I mean times three and it is the ugliest thing I think the show has ever done like ever (laughs) and ever and Max responds to it I think by like he like punches the kid or something um, well, what happened is he he started passing out flyers at school to try to get the kid expelled. And remember, Chambers Academy is a no bullying, no harassment. And what right. he did was a tar- was a form of targeted bullying. Bullying and, and harassment. And then so the kid gets upset and um, he actually pushed Max first and then Max pushed him back. But like. Him pushing Max is a retaliation to this very aggressive type of bullying that Max bullying. was engaging in and trying to get the other kids to engage in. He was literally asking people to sign a petition to get the kid expelled. Spelled. And he is not disciplined for it. No, and he's it, not. And the show does not discipline him for it either. Like, nobody in the break... Like, was completely denied that he was harassing that kid and that he was harassing Dylan. And right. Cause her parents come and make up a stink like rightfully. Right. Right. 
And they, and both Adam and Christina act like they're like the parents of Dylan and of this, this boy are just nuts. Well, this is one of the ugliest things that Adam and Christina have ever done, you guys. So, um, they, they end up later after this whole thing with the boy, Dylan and Max are paired on a school project and she begs to be reassigned and Christina will not reassign her. And she, he keeps harassing her. Her parents witness it. They tell her parents that what they saw is not what's actually going on. And then when um, they are confronted by the parents, they make this big scene where Adam basically calls them out and says that they're negligent parents. They don't know what's going on with their kid. And they should be so fortunate to have her at this school. And then... Um, both he and Christina say the most white liberal shit I've ever heard when they tell Max that what he did was not harassment because the harassment wasn't his intent. Right. Which is the fuck? Not, uh, the fuck? <laughs> like, what are you even talking about? And it's like, and it's, and it, and to be honest, like, because the plot is so huge, because this is like a big plot, it goes on for several episodes. It, it tanks this, what, because, this is the final season. Like you in your final season of your show, I think you want to, it's not that like your final season should be a fluff season. Um, but you want your final season to, uh, really leave the viewer with the reason of like why they started this show in the first place. You know what I mean? Of like why you, why they loved this show, particularly, uh, a parenthood show, which isn't like on a streaming service, uh, air, like it was a show that aired from week to week. Um, and it was a network show. You want to leave, like you want to, you want to leave like your audience on an up feeling. And this isn't like, it just isn't it. And I remember like when I was watching it, like in real time, I couldn't even enjoy this final season specifically because of this plot, because it was like, you just wanted to be happy that Amber was having this baby. You just wanted to like be happy that like um, Jasmine and Crosby eventually get the luncheonette back on track after it peters out. You want to you want to like say like a nice goodbye to all these characters, and like you can't because I'm dominated or I'm smacked in the face with this v- ugly dumb Max plot that makes no right. sense. Max did hit the kid first, you guys. He distributed the flyers. The kid got angry and called him a little bitch, and Max hit him first. Um, so he did. He did. He did throw the first punch, and he did throw. He did um, distribute those flyers, which is harassment and which is bullying. And he, like, he even tries to like pull rank, and he's like, "I want the." When he when he first saw this kid kissing Dylan, he asked his mother to expel the kid. And when his mother wouldn't do that, that's when he started distributing the flyers. Um, it's interesting because they they Adam and Christina later come to apologize to this girl's parents, which they should have, and Max apologizes to Dylan, but. Again, the whole conversation that they had with their son prior telling him that it was not harassment because of his intentions. This was the moment, the overdue moment to have a conversation with your son about consent and boundaries. And they did not do that. Right. And it's and if we're honest, it's just it's a combination of just like, I think all these seasons, like, (laughs) 
all these seasons of Max not respecting anybody's boundaries. But it's just, like I said, it's ugly. It's, and it's particularly ugly for a final season. Like, it, it doesn't even make sense for a final season. And it, it leads me to wonder if Parenthood thought it was going to get, like, a seventh season. But... But this episode was only... This season was only 13 episode order. I think they knew they were in their last leg. They had they, to have known. They ha- That's what I'm saying. Like, they had to have known. But, like, I... Because I otherwise I don't know why you have this plot. I really don't. Truly. I I really think of a lot of things to do with Max. The writers really don't understand how it comes off. They want to make Max the victim in these situations. And they tried this with Julia as well with the whole adoption storyline. We were clearly supposed to see her as the wounded party here. And it does not hit at it all. It does not hit at all. And like <laughs> and and that's the thing about this Max Dylan plot is that like you can tell the writers are absolutely trying to get you to be on Max's side in this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, like, and, 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 and like, you're just confused because it's like, absolutely not. Right. Or not even be on Max's side, but like, I think they're trying to elicit empathy for him. But again, like you're a teenager, you're going to be rejected. Um, Dylan even comes to their house to apologize um, to Max. And he's like, well, I don't want your, I don't want your friendship. I don't want your apology, blah, blah, blah. Um, This, this whole season didn't just turn me off to Max. Like it, like entirely, which was, had already been happening, but it really turned me off to, Adam and Christina like I always thought they were shitty parents to Max even though I like them at pe- as people but their response to his harassment of this girl made me dislike them as people which I think is completely and utterly fair and yeah ugh, it's and just- I and so it's like it's like Alex said this is not something you want in your final season for me to just like want to emotionally divorce myself from all these characters all these characters like it's so it doesn't make sense it's like make it make sense okay so another thing uh so that's and that's a, honestly the last I want to say on the max plot but um something else that happens this season is I want to talk about how Joel just comes crawling back. I mean, I think we saw we saw kernels of this behavior when I looked at his face during Aida's baptism, but then like it goes full throttle um this season because um Julia's new boyfriend Chris, again her her ex-boyfriend from college is now her current boyfriend. She he sees how Chris is you know, being integrated into the family, we learned that like Christina, Joel didn't really have a bio family that he was close to. And he kind of sees that he's not just losing his Julia, but he's losing the Bravermans and he misses Julia. And I don't know what he misses fam. I really don't know, but he misses Julia and, and he goes to Zeke and Zeke is like, do you love her? You need to fight for your family if you love her. And we could say that Zeke is the one who put the idea in his head, but Joe Joe really was trying to come back. We don't know why, but he was trying to come back. You guys, I have no idea why, but he was trying to come back, and I guess they do whatever. They work it out. I wasn't. I wish there had been somebody to tell Joel that to love himself, and that's a perfectly valid <laughs> thing for him to have. But that's what happens when you don't have no family, and unfortunately, his family is her family. Like I think if he if if he, if he had had sat down with his mother or his father, they might have just put that shit in perspective, right? 
um, and like tell him, you know, you need to love yourself, Joel. I think the one good thing about their coming back together is the conversation they have. Not to, not a conversation we hear, but they, he comes back home and they all the old fights begin again. And then and then she's like, we need to have this fight. And he's like, I'm too scared to fight with you right now. And she says, I'm too scared not to fight with you. So they go out to the car and they have like a full on argument, fight, conversation, discussion, reconciliation. And so you get the feeling that something of substance was said in that conversation. And they're not just going to pretend like the past didn't happen. Right. Um, and they, and they, they work it out, I guess, whatever. Well, yeah, it's it, it happened. It's something it, that happened. It happened. <laughs> like it's something that happened. I guess that we are like whatever. Um, also, so then also the the luncheonette falls on hard times, um, and it's the recording studio is not doing well. Yeah. And so Oliver Rome fucked them over, you guys. <laughs> yes. Because essentially they were trying to get into producing, or like right. That was like that whole point. Was that like right? they were not only going to just, like, have Oliver record there, but they were going to, like, produce his, like, Crosby was going to, like, produce the record. And then that's, like, an that's like an additional income to... Because he's just an engineer. He wasn't, like, he wasn't producing, producing yet. Um, I thought he was producing, but they wanted to sign artists and be, like, a legit record label. Wasn't that yeah. it? Okay. Um, yes. Okay, yes, so- yes. So they had gotten this artist because Ashes of Rome was the band and they were like really temperamental with their last record label. And even though like Adam and and Crosby could not stand these guys, they were like, they're mad talented though. So let's get them on our roster. Let's have them be the first band that we officially sign. And then Oliver Rome decided to find himself. He had his eat, pray, love moment and decided that he was just going to bail. He canceled, he canceled tour dates without notice. Um, he left the label. Um, he left his band hanging high and dry. And the luncheonette was just like, it, it could not bear up under the weight of their first artist doing this to them. Um, right. And Crosby fights. He fights hard to get Oliver to come back. But he doesn't. Um, and, and they're just fucked. <laughs> and they're fucked in the luncheonette. Like and then and I was mistaken earlier. Like they're unable to save the luncheonette, and the luncheonette just is dissolved, which sucks. Mm-hmm. Aww. it really does suck. Yeah, but Jasmine really is a G. Like she shows up for her man. She's like, listen, I don't care what's going on. I just care that you're keeping things from me. You need to understand. Like we're a team. Like Jasmine is a real one, and um. I, I think that was another really great test of their relationship. Um, just like the race conversation, I feel like this f- conversation about finances needed to be had. They are a young couple still. They're still newlyweds for the most part. And having that that conversation about finances was important because Crosby was not used to not having income. <laughs> right. And I think one of the things that... So, and something that, like, I guess is like slightly annoying that like falls by the wayside. Um, and with Jasmine's characters, like they just like forget Jasmine has a career, like, or they don't like, we, we see Jasmine auditioning and stuff and then getting parts in, in, in like the earlier seasons. And then it sort of just like falls off, which is weird. Um, 
I believe when she got that role, um, she she ends up coming home and surprising Crosby and Jabbar. And she's like, listen, I just wanted to know that I could do it, but I want to be here with my family. And then she starts teaching dance, which is when we see in season five that Jabbar is in her dance class. So right. I don't know if they, dro- they dropped it off so much as they just gave much, much more attention to other characters. <laughs> Max. <laughs> Julia, um, <laughs> but in this season when they fall on hard times she actually stops teaching dance and she gets a job as like a file clerk in the office where her mother works right which doesn't make because dance teaching dance is good money like i like i see lots of people survive off, like not even just survive but like thrive off of it so um, I, I think it's the benefits that she wanted like the health care all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but she I clearly mean, was just like, "Uh, I'm doing it for the money." <laughs> yeah, which, like I said, I don't know. That doesn't track with me. I don't know. I feel that's a sticking point because even then, like, I know, I know people who are dance teachers, run dance studios, have great health insurance, make really good money, support their whole families off of it. Um, but I guess, like, so. Yeah, that, no. So, yeah, I think that's still a sticking point with me. Um, I think it's possible that the writers just wrote this um, into the script to show us how devoted Jasmine was to Crosby. Right? right. Like, she, she's willing to, like, stop teaching dance and get a quote-unquote real job to help out with the finances. And Jasmine's very, very, like cool about it she's like this isn't what i want to do but this is what my family needs like i'm not going to mope and gripe about it it's a job rory gilmore could learn a lot from jasmine but <laughs> uh, moving on it's a job she has a job um she's taking care of her family and um like crosby's acting out with the whole financial things because he's keeping it from her so when she finally gets the truth out of him she really steps up to the plate um jasmine does go back to teaching dance later on we see her teaching dance at chambers academy but for right now i think this was definitely a move that the writers did to show us that she's committed to the relationship and to remind us that her mom is alive <laughs> we haven't seen her I mom guess. in a minute yeah i guess there <laughs> is um, I guess I maybe that's like I said that's probably just a personal thing I think that you can still show that by you know her being like okay I'm gonna teach more classes I'm gonna like do this I'm gonna like hustle this like in in her field of choice without like going to this office thing um and I think I would have I don't know like I guess sure fine whatever I'll take it I think um, the thing that bothers you might be the same thing that bothers me is that Crosby never is, is, is never becomes a suit. He never takes a desk job for the family. Right. Like he gets to always be the creative. Right. Um, yeah. So that was the thing that bothered me personally. Um, but so that's a plot that happened. Um, Zeke gets his surgery. We want to talk about the aftermath of that. Yeah. We're going to talk about, we can talk about that. So he takes out all of his anger on Millie and it's Christina that pretty much like enlists, um, like, uh, you know, get him, gets him to stop feeling sorry for himself, but he has a surgery. He feels like crap. And this is, I I know it's going to sound bad you guys, but it's definitely for me feels like a, a woe is Millie situation. I feel like Millie's contributions to the family are so overlooked, especially by Zeke. 
and it bothers me. That's fair. And I agree with that. I think, I don't think this show, besides like the trip to Italy and besides the very short art teacher thing, I think that there's definitely, uh, I think sometimes there can be like a neglect of Camille on this show. Yeah, she's a character that's neglected a lot, um, which is interesting because it's something that I see a little bit with supporting characters and definitely a lot with recurring characters. But um, with her, it's definitely the show makes it very clear that like Zeke is in charge. Zeke make, makes all the decisions. Zeke is the, the 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 foundation, the building block of the family. And, um, I feel like the Millie character is underutilized by the writers. Um, not she to is overlook. Her, yeah. And it, and it's strange because she is such a strong actress. Um, and so I don't know if it's like ageism or they don't know how to like center like a matriarch or, or find stories for a matriarch that can be believable in that way. I don't know. There's something, there's just something missing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the show even makes light of something that was probably a small thing, but disturbed me when Camille had wanted to sell their house and Zeke tells her, you know, they're, they're talking about the times that they've had in the house that they raised their kids. And he's talking, he tells, he confesses that there used to be an oak tree, a beautiful big oak tree that Millie loved where his shed now stands. And he told her that the tree was diseased and needed to be cut down so that he could put his shed there. Right. He just always is white lying or he's white lying or just like going over her head to to and not consider her feelings and the show can never have and the show like i said besides the italy trip and besides like the art stuff then the show never really lets her really deal with those things or like be upset about them or or try to really find something for herself outside of this relationship outside of these kids uh which is upsetting because i feel like jasmine's mom is and does and has right so I know that they know, you know, Jasmine's mom is like a part of her church. She's like really into her garden. She um, works. Uh, she checks in on Jasmine's brother, like has a whole like life for herself. And yet Camille doesn't, can't, or and that, I don't know, that's weird. I think that that's actually a form of benevolent racism. Um, benevolent racism is... It's not not what it sounds like. It's not like nice racism, you guys. It's just when a racial stereotype works to um, the advantage of the person being discriminated. In this instance, like viewers, even white viewers, are used to black mothers, especially black single mothers, having it all together. They can raise the kids. They can go to work. They can organize at church and look fly doing it. And... I think that Millie's character would have been benefited from being written that way, right? But right. they didn't they didn't they didn't think to do it. <laughs> think to do it. Listen, uh, it's it's definitely something to meditate on, definitely. Um Oh, I was going to say that um um Millie and Sarah actually have a conversation about this in season six where like, she's like, she has her headphones on and she's trying to learn 
Mandarin, but then she tells her, I'm probably going to give up on this because I give up on everything. And I feel like they're trying to like turn it back on the character as like Millie is the one who's flighty and who's a quitter and not that she was running a household and raising all these children and taking care of a husband who's like a fifth child and that all of her good years went to supporting them and their dreams. It tried to turn the situation around. Like, just like, Melly is a flighty person, like Sarah. Right. Like, they're like they're retroactively trying to find a justification. Which is, which is like, bad writing. Um, and it's weak. Because then that would have been something that came up way earlier. Exactly. Um, so that's disappointing. Something that could have been really interesting is if in an earlier season or possibly during that Thanksgiving episode, instead of Camille fighting against Jasmine's mom, like it could have been really cool for Camille and Jasmine's mom to like form a friendship and talk to each other. And, you know, Camille sort of look at Jasmine's mom's life and is like, hey, like, how do I get that? You have it together you are living this full life you're happy like you're doing all the shit I want to do like how do I get that um and that could have been super interesting because you know Gloria Steinem very famously says that like black women taught her feminism and I think that could have been um like that type of a story could have been like really interesting to touch on and explore um even just thinking about you know two women of close ages and how both of them have probably lived super radically different lives but how like they came to be how they came to be and then forging a friendship and then encouraging um one or the other to to grow in that way that could have been super interesting and cool uh amber has this baby yeah um prior to having the baby though she takes that road trip with her brother right Drew drives her her ass all the way to Wyoming, which is where Ryan's mom took him after his accident, so she can tell him that he's about to be a father. And then she she gets it in her dumbass head to like, we're, I'm gonna stay here and make it work. And Drew's like, Nah, sis, you're gonna get your ass in this car, and we're going home. <laughs> right, and we're going home. Like, yeah. <laughs> and thank goodness Drew was there to be the voice of reason. I can't stress enough how much I love Amber and Drew's relationship. Of all the siblings on the show, I think they have the best um, relationship and like the best. Um, uh, sibling dynamic um, they're really always there for each other and they're probably the only group of siblings on the show that can keep secrets like between them and not spill the beans to the rest of the extended family but he he's like if you're gonna go see this guy I'm gonna drive you and I'm gonna make sure you, you come back home because this is a mistake um, he's broken and you are going to have the same relationship that mom had with dad if you stay here and her, she lets her brother be the voice of reason. She goes home and, you know, she toughs it out. She has this baby who she names after her grandfather. Baby's named Zeke uh, or Ezekiel Braverman. And um, I, I thought that was a really beautiful thing to do. Not because I'm a fan of the Zeke character, but because we have seen from season one through season six that Amber and her grandfather are very close. It makes perfect sense that she would name her kid after him. Right, it does. You're it. It absolutely tracks with the character and in their relationship. The person who got married in the season was Sarah. Oh right, Sarah. Sarah got married. That's right, Sarah and Hank. 
Um, I still don't see it for them. I still don't see that. I don't see chemistry. I don't see, like, I don't see it. (laughs) Um... Honestly, I feel like it should have been Mr. Mr. Sear. And they, like... And then, I don't know, like, they got Ray Romano. And then they're like, okay, let's just make it Ray Romano. Like, I felt like it was always... Because Mark... Sear just comes back so many times throughout the series for Sarah that like <laughs> I always thought it was for real going to be Mr. Sear and then I think like at the last minute like Ray Romano was like oh yeah I'd like to be on the show and they're like okay sure like because Ray Romano had just come off of like well he didn't just but like he was still like had like an aura about him because of everybody loves Raymond so they're like yes we're doing this yeah um i thought it would be mr sear too until i realized that the writers were trying to sabotage the relationship or were trying to put an end to it and i realized this when she meets his mark's friends and then she realizes that he wants to have a child and then she contemplates the possibility of having a child and like she and her sisters and Jasmine are kind of joking about it, but Sarah really doesn't want this. And they make it seem like something Mr. Sear wants really, really badly. Like he doesn't know how old Sarah is and hasn't known this entire time. Right. And that's when I like, and that's when I realized the writers really do want to kill this relationship. <laughs> because like, it, I feel like that's something they discussed. Like the first time that they got together, I was like, she's like, Oh, like I'm much older than you. And he's like, yeah, I don't care. Like, he's like, I get like, that's fine. Um, so it's like, why would he be up about like having kids when he knows she's like this much older and then like he's taught her teenage kids, right? In school. Right. Like Sarah turns 40 in season four. He knew how old she was. He knew how old she was. (laughs) So, and because like, you know, Jason Ritter keeps coming back, keeps coming back. Like every time you think they're done with this relationship, like he shows up again. I figured, okay, well they i guess this is the one like this is the person that they're trying to do or whatever but no it's just Mm -hmm. and then like i said they got ray romano so they're like yeah it's gonna be hank um and they switched it around for for that reason but really quickly on the wedding sarah's wedding dress was 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 uh but with the gloves it was downright hideous i'm just gonna put that out there the place where she got married was really beautiful she and hank got married in a hurry because she wanted her father to live to see it uh max was the wedding photographer and he actually did a good job even though he found a new um girl to obsess over ruby's friend at the wedding some i think it's a black girl biracial girl big curly brown hair and he must have snapped 200 photos of this poor child during the wedding um but i think my favorite moments in season six are when again when zeke learns that amber is pregnant and he tells her that he's happy and they sure get another really great moment and when she gives him a an ultrasound photo and he tells her to hold on to it because he's going to live to see this baby born. Um, Another favorite moment besides Drew dragging Amber's ass back home, um, was when, um, Zeke is trying to spend quality time with Drew and Drew's resentful, but then Natalie speaks to him and he decides to go shooting with his grandfather. Cause Zeke is Zeke really wants to build more, create more memories with Drew before he's gone. And so seeing Amber and Drew, like, you know, try to, um, to cement the relationship with them, you know, long after they've moved out of their grandparents' house, I thought was really, really beautiful. 
you know, Amber and Camille had a great relationship in season one, too, that I really felt could have been deepened as the seasons progressed, but never really did. Right. Same. Fair. Um, and I think, I think honestly, like beyond, cause like we do get like a great sort of relationship between Camille and like Hattie, I think in those earlier seasons, but like, I think they dropped the ball with Camille and all these grandkids, um, be like, and some of the kids, I think in general, uh, but some of my my favorite moments definitely is I love like when Crosby goes to chase what's his face on this Eat Pray Love tour. That's funny, <laughs> <laughs> particularly like when they're at like the the meditative like retreat or some some stuff. It's like it's like a silent meditation, and he's the loudest fuck. <laughs> he's loud. It's really funny. Um, I like seeing uh, Hank's daughter come back and like them. Uh, doing all that together I thought it was really beautiful um and and I love the ending I really do like the ending episode the the ending episode with the ending montage I think those are some of my favorite moments um I think this whole season is worth a watch it's super short it's 13 episodes um I would just skip all the max stuff um just fast forward through it um, oh, another favorite moment that I had forgotten when Zeke tells Crosby off when he has the audacity to call her selfish um, for wanting to sell the house. And she's like, nah, I've been taking care of you and your father and everybody else. I'm going to do this thing for me. And he didn't have shit to say because there was nothing to say. I felt that right. was long. Oh, that was long overdue. Long overdue. And it's really satisfying, like in that ending montage to see Camille, like in some foreign country. I don't that she's supposed to be in see her doing that like in traveling and finally getting to do what she wants to do yeah so millie went to paris because the last thing that zeke had asked drew to do was to find that bnb in 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 paris for him and he wanted to take millie there after after rejecting her offer to go to italy okay when he was still healthy enough to go right he wants to to take her here so after Zeke dies, so Zeke dies um, the weekend after the weekend of Sarah's wedding, and you know she does this for herself. She takes a trip that he wanted to take her on, basically. And the the whole ending montage I thought was one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. Like I usually hate these when it seems like they're just trying to cram in a bunch of details, but it was so well done. Zeke dies. They scatter his ashes at the baseball stadium. They play a game of baseball. I like he made Adam promise to do. Millie goes to Paris. Um, years pass. Jasmine is pregnant again. We see a grown Aida. Um, well, not a grown Aida, but a much bigger Aida sitting on Amber's lap. Um, Joel and Julia have another baby because we see Victor's sister who they adopted. We see Sydney. We see Victor. And we see them holding yet another baby. Um we amber has a husband and a little girl ryan is involved in his son zeke's life max graduates high school all of this shit is super cute right it's really sweet and it looks really nice and everybody looks really happy and it it is satisfying and yet still my grade for this season is bad Mm. um i think um leaving out Joel coming back and um this ugly ugly Dylan plotline the the writing 
on the rest of the season was very strong. So it's not my cup of tea, but I'm going to say it's good. They did what they could do with 13 episodes, I guess. We, <laughs> we got way too much of Max. Way too much of Max. I'm sorry. I can't. And and that's why I'm saying, like, I think you have to give it, like, a bad. Like, too much of Max. And then, like, for the Max plot to be as ugly as it was. And for Christina and Adam to be as ugly as it was. I, and then this horrible Joel and Julia thing that happens. Um, I, feel, it's a, I think it's a solid bad. Like, I... Not, like, a solid bad, but, like, it's definitely, like, a bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? Um, I think I'm basing my answers off of Amber and Drew's relationship, <laughs> that that closing montage, and, um... And what else? What else? What else? What else? Um, um, the, um, Jasmine teaching at Chambers Academy. These were the these were highly highly beautiful moments and themes, but I I guess the rest of the season was basic. It was ba- it was it was it was basic. I'm sorry. You're it's it's a, it's a basic for you. Listen, I think that's fair. And like I said, season six I think is is worth the whole watch. I would I would check out uh, all those episodes. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, and season six is like super duper short. So if you want to like get to know the Bravermans, watch season one, season four, and season six. It's six. fine. <laughs> That's it. That's fine. Um, and there you have it, folks. This is everything that we think made the last three seasons of Parenthood good, bad, and basic. If you'd like to watch or rewatch Parenthood, it's currently streaming on Hulu. Parenthood truly put the family back into family dramas and was a model of how ensemble dramas should be handled, as well as as well as how we'd all imagine being part of a big family would be like in a perfect world. Patrons, be sure to check out the GBB Parenthood Spotify playlist. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing Fox's hit family sitcom, Malcolm in the Mill. If you'd like to watch or relive this series, Malcolm in the Middle is currently streaming on Hulu. Until then, our top tier patrons can tune in to our next music video retrospective episode featuring the one and only Miss Janet Jackson. If you're not on this tier yet, level up. The episode goes live this Saturday. We'll be discussing the very best of Miss Jackson's videography and how her style and choreography continue to be a powerful influence in pop culture. Follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic on all major podcast platforms to listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash good, bad, basic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Be sure to follow us at Good Bad Basic Pod on Twitter. And of course, follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic, where all of our social media links are listed. Until next time. Bye, Bye everyone. everyone.